Now, we don't have the time to mention all the verses, and there are many, many verses that teach the doctrine of the security of the believer. But at least a few of them I can share with you that are unquestionably clear. John chapter 10, starting verse 27. I don't know how Jesus could have made it any clearer than than he did with these words. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, as I said, I don't know how it could be communicated in any clearer language than that. Hello, and welcome to Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, is our teacher. And we're exploring the meaning and importance of repentance. We have a lot of ground to cover today, so I'll just briefly set the stage. Psalm 51 has a lot to teach us about repentance. And in that psalm, King David prayed, Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And before we look into the vital importance of repentance, here's Pastor Steve to clear up some possible misunderstandings of David's words. John 6.37, Our Lord said, All that the Father gives me, meaning all those who are the elect, will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. I'll never cast them out. So when David says, cast me not from your presence, our Lord answers, I will never cast any whom the Father has given to me out. Romans 8.1 says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus meaning believers. But here's something that is precious, and we don't emphasize it enough, the, the true meaning in the context of what Paul is saying. All of Romans 8 is really given to teach us the security of the believer. Paul starts with that. Verse 1, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He ends chapter 8 by saying, who or what will separate us from the love of God? And he mentions some things that people might think of. But in Romans 8.28, Paul says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now think about that. If all things are working together for the good of a believer, that would include even sin. Now Paul's not commending sin, but he is saying that God is so sovereign that he will use everything in life, even our sin or the sins of others, to make us more like Christ, which he'll go on to say. Now, if everything works together for good, then we can't lose salvation because that's bad. All things are working together for good. How could you lose your salvation if God is using even your sin to work together for good? And then Paul goes on to say, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. If you've trusted Christ, your destiny is is to become conformed to the image of Christ, not go to hell. And then Paul goes on to say, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, and these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. And listen to this, these whom he justified, he also glorified. Listen, you and I are not glorified people, not yet. But Paul speaks of it as if it's already happened because it's so certain. That's the security we have. And then just one other, Philippians 1.6, for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. If Paul is confident, I am too. 
So if by his request that God would not cast him away and remove the Holy Spirit from him, David wasn't referring to losing his salvation. The question is, then what was he referring to? What do these words mean? Listen closely. What David is concerned about isn't the loss of his salvation, but rather the loss of God's power in his life to live a godly life. A life of victory over sin. The loss of God's enabling grace to obey him. See, it's important to understand that in Old Testament times, believers were not permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Christians are today. But Old Testament believers were not. Only since the beginning, the inauguration of the church on the day of Pentecost, have believers experienced the ongoing, continuous indwelling of the Holy Spirit, never to leave us, never to depart from us. Shortly before he died, Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 17, that the Holy Spirit will abide with you and will be in you. In other words, when the Spirit comes, he will remain with you as he lives inside of you. That's why the Apostle Paul told the Christians at the church at Rome, if anyone, he said, does not have the Spirit of Christ, then he doesn't belong to the Lord. Because Meaning this, all true believers do have the Spirit of Christ. And as you'll recall, Paul also told the Corinthians, who were a notoriously sinful congregation, that their bodies were the temple of the Holy Spirit. So for church-age believers like us, it's not possible for the Holy Spirit to depart from us. Not possible for us to lose salvation or to lose him. But in the days prior to the establishment of the church during Old Testament times, believers, as I said, were not permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit as we are, but rather, here's how it worked. The Spirit of God would come upon certain individuals at certain times in their lives in order to equip and empower them to carry out important tasks and ministries. For example, we read in Numbers 27, 18, that in commissioning Joshua to take the place of Moses as the leader of the Jewish people, God said of Joshua that he was a man in whom is the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit had come upon Joshua to enable him to be the leader of the nation in the absence of Moses. In the book of Judges, we read several times that the Spirit of the Lord coming upon certain men as they were appointed to be the judges of Israel, and they were empowered then to rule over Israel when there was no king in Israel. There were judges who led the people. But what would have been most significant to David in terms of the Spirit of God coming upon a man to empower him is that there was a time when the Spirit of God had come upon his predecessor, Saul, when Saul was appointed to be the first king of Israel. But after committing a very serious sin, the Lord had cast Saul away, and he had removed his spirit from him. And I think it's, it's exactly what David is thinking about. As David is now repenting, he sees the, the gravity of his sin, the foulness of his sin for the very first time, and it occurs to him that God might do to him what he did to King Saul, cast him away from being the king of Israel, remove his spear from him. Folks, that's exactly what he did with Saul. 
We read in 1 Samuel 16, 1, now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, I'll send you to Jesse from Bethlehem. For I have selected a king for myself amongst his sons. So, you know the story, several sons come out and God says, no, it's not that one, it's not that one. Finally, Samuel says, do you have any other sons? He said, yes, there's a little shepherd boy, young shepherd boy. Samuel says, bring him in. So we pick up the story in verse 12. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Now let me stop here and say, wasn't David a believer already? Yes, But he didn't have as you and I have as believers the indwelling spirit of God. But it says that the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel arose and went to Ramah. And then here's the penetrating next statement. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Now David had been aware of all of this that had gone on, that had happened to Saul. And so as he now is contemplating his own sin, he prays that God will not remove him from being Israel's king and take the Holy Spirit from him like he did with Saul. Why? Because he needs the Spirit. He needs the Spirit of God to empower him to live a wise life, a godly life, a holy life as Israel's leader. Listen, I want you to understand this. David isn't praying like this only because he wants to keep his job. That's not what this is about. Primary thing that is driving him to ask the Lord not to remove him from office and take back his spirit is that he wants to have a clean heart. He wants a renewed spirit of godliness. That's what he's just prayed for. And he knows that he needs the Holy Spirit in his life for this to happen because he knows that he has no power in and of himself No power to live a sustained life of victory over sin. And that's why he prays the way he does in the very next verse, which is connected, verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Now notice that David asked the Lord not to restore him to salvation, but to restore him to the joy of salvation. And there's a good reason for this, why he prayed this way, because for the past year, as David has sought to cover and conceal his sin, he's had no joy in his soul. He's had only misery because of his refusal to repent of what he had done. See, while sin will never cause you to lose your salvation, unconfessed sin will cause you to lose the joy of your salvation. Because unrepentant sin robs us of joy. You cannot enjoy fellowship with the Lord while you are in sin. Most miserable person on this planet is a Christian who has not repented of their sin. Why are they more miserable than others? Because they've tasted the goodness of God. They've experienced fellowship with the Lord. They know about the peace that passes all human understanding And now, that joy, that peace, that fellowship, it's all being forfeited. They've tasted of it, and they can't taste it again. And they won't get it back, and they won't taste of it again until there's repentance over their sin. That's how it works. So I ask you, are you miserable today because of your sin? 
Do you lack joy and peace in your heart because you are holding on to something that you know is wrong and you refuse to let go? Just stop it. Stop it now and repent. And not just because you want to be happy once again, but because your sin is offensive to God and Christ died for your sin and it is preventing you from enjoying your relationship with him. Repent. That's what David is thinking. He's asking God to restore him to the joy of his salvation and joy of knowing him, the joy of being spiritually intimate with him, the joy that comes from appreciating this incredible salvation that he's been given. But he knows that the only thing that will allow him to enjoy his Lord and his salvation is for him to keep obeying the Lord. And that's why he says, and it's very important, these last words of verse 12, and sustain me with a willing spirit. More than merely wanting to keep his job as Israel's king, David wants the spirit of God to remain upon him so that, notice this, he will sustain him. Sustain him with a spirit, a willing spirit, meaning an attitude of his heart, a willingness to persevere in obedience to the Lord. That's what he wants. He's asking the Lord to sustain him, to help him, to support him, to uphold him so that he doesn't fall back into sin, so that he has a heart that remains in submission to God. So how does all this apply to you if you're a Christian? Well, it would certainly be wrong if you're a believer to ask the Lord to not remove his spirit from you because that will never happen. You don't need to pray that. Jesus said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So, you shouldn't pray like that. You shouldn't be afraid of God removing his spirit from you. He's not going to do it. However, what you should be concerned about is that if you refuse to repent of a sin that God has convicted you of, he may very well set you aside from a ministry where you have been useful and effective in serving him. Put you on the shelf. Disqualify you from an effective ministry. This is precisely what the Apostle Paul feared would happen to him if he sinned against God by not disciplining his body and bringing it into submission. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.27, but I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Disqualified from what, Paul? Well, apparently what Paul feared is that with a lack of discipline over his own body, he might fall into sexual sin, which would certainly disqualify him from being an apostle, being a leader in the church. And so he made sure that he disciplined his body and that his body listened to his mind. He brought it under control so that he would not be set aside from being useful to the Lord. Folks, if you're serious about repenting of your sin, then you'll have the same exact attitude and desire that the apostle had to live a life of godly obedience so that you will not be set aside, not be put on the shelf, not be useless to the Lord. That's the desire of every Christian who repents of their sin because forsaking sin and walking in holiness is one of the marks of true repentance. Listen closely. It is the Holy Spirit who lives in you, who makes you willing to obey God and gives you the power. 
to obey him. You don't have this desire to obey God in yourself. I don't have this desire to obey God in myself. This is the work of the Spirit of God in us. And while the Holy Spirit will never be taken from you, your sin of any deliberate disobedience can quench him. Quench him to the point where his power to work in you and to strengthen you is just diminished. That's really the principle behind David's prayer. In essence, what David is saying is, Lord, I need your Holy Spirit to give me the sustaining strength, the sustaining grace to obey you when I am tempted to fall into adultery again or any sin that so dishonors you. And folks, that's exactly the attitude that accompanies true repentance. We look to the Lord to help us to obey him. And we don't lean upon ourselves for this because we know how weak we are. That's why we're repenting in the first place because we're weak. We know how weak we are. We don't possess the strength to sustain ourselves spiritually. We know that without the Lord's grace, we'll fall again into the same old sins. And so we cry out to God, sustain me with a willing spirit. Give me a steadfastness of heart. And the Lord will do it because as concerned as you are that you do forsake sin and walk in holiness, as concerned as you are about that, he's even more concerned than you about those things. And he will give to the one who humbles himself the grace to obey him. Remember, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. We might as well put it this way. God resists the unrepentant but gives grace to the repentant. One of the ways, one of the very specific ways that he does give us grace to to forsake our sin and to walk in holiness is by the ordinance that we're about to observe called the Lord's Supper. That's part of God's grace in our lives. Why? Because the Lord's Supper is not only a time that we remember Jesus. It's also a time that we repent of any known sin. It's a time where we're called to examine ourselves. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23, Paul said, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Meaning he got this information from Jesus by revelation and he's given it, he's presented it, he's delivered it to the Corinthians. At the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Whenever you do this, remember me. Remember my death for you. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, And drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we do at the Lord's Supper. We remember the death of our Lord. The the little pieces of matzah remind us of Christ's body broken for us. The cup reminds us of his blood shed for us. But Paul didn't stop there. The Corinthians, as I said before, were a notoriously corrupt and sinful congregation. And in the verses leading up to this, Paul had chided and rebuked them because they were having a common meal when they celebrated the Lord's Supper and some of them 
had gotten there early and not waited for others, others who were slaves and couldn't get off to celebrate the Lord's Supper and this common meal. And so they ate before and they drank before. And Paul said, you're gluttonous and some of you are drunkards. Do this in your own house. Don't meet as a church doing this. You're selfish. You don't care about anybody else but yourselves and feeding your stomachs. So he goes on to say, in light of that, starting in verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, and that's what he's talking about, this selfish, self-promoting, thinking only of me attitude, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. You don't care about the, the Lord, you care about yourself. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he's to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. When you think of the Lord's death, this is the time to examine your heart. Make sure there's no sin there. Deal with it. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. If he does not judge the body rightly, I'm talking about his own body. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. He's saying that God has disciplined some of you and you've still not learned. So repent. We are commanded when we have the Lord's Supper to examine our lives to determine if there is some sin that we are holding on to, retaining. Perhaps a refusal to forgive someone, a grudge. I'm not talking to this person. Perhaps a spirit of jealousy, covetousness, envy, sin of worrying, fearing. Perhaps a sexual sin, either physical or mental. Whatever that sin might be, it must be repented of or God will discipline you. He'll put you on the shelf so that you'll be miserable as David had been and you will lose your usefulness to the Lord until you repent. So don't continue in any sin. This is the time to repent right now, today, not tomorrow, today. For the next few moments, we're going to give ourselves to examining ourselves. Don't, don't be morbidly introspective. Ask the Lord to bring to mind anything that needs to be repented of, and then our men will pass out the elements. Lord, if there's anything in my life, show me what I need to repent of. If there's anything in the lives of anyone here, show them what they need to repent of. We realize that some may not even know you, so we pray you'll bring them to repentance for salvation. But for those of us who do know you, Lord, help us to do what's right before you. Show us attitudes, things we perhaps have said to others, words, thoughts, anything that needs to be forsaken. Promises perhaps we've made that we haven't followed through on. Anything. So we want to come to your table, Lord, with clean hearts, pure minds, clean hands, worship you properly, not being put on the shelf. That would be just horrible. So we pray that as we partake of the Lord's Supper, Lord, that you'll be honored, your people be strengthened as they remember you. We are so grateful for your death for us, Lord. Thank you that our sins have more than than been covered. They have been removed by Christ who paid for them. No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, Lord. 
We praise you. How great you are. Amen. Amen. It was good to have you with us today as Pastor Steve Kreloff takes us verse by verse through Psalm 51. Verse by Verse is a listener-supported ministry of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, where Pastor Steve serves as the teaching pastor. Find out more about Lakeside at lakesidechapel.com or call 727-441-1714. For free downloads of this and previous Verse by Verse broadcasts, take your web browser to versebyverseradio.org. This is Jerry Peterson. I hope you can join us for the next Verse by Verse as Pastor Steve begins his concluding message in this series that could change your life. Music